Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Okay, so you guys, without any further ado, please put your hands together for David Bajor. Thank you, Christine. Uh, thank you for coming. Uh, this is, it's really great to see everybody. Yeah. Um, I flew all the way from South Carolina uh, just to read to a couple of places here in Southern California, and it's completely worth it. Uh, yeah, it was 94 when I left Columbia, South Carolina, and it was 94 when I landed in San Diego. <laughs> I didn't know. So Christine called this a medical thriller. It's being packaged as a medical thriller, and I have nothing to do with that. Uh, it is medical, and depending on what thrills you, maybe it's thrilling. But uh, I, I didn't know that I was writing a medical thriller. I know um, I, gave, I gave a reading after I had written maybe 50 pages. It was crazy. It's crazy to read anything that's only 50 pages out there, and uh, it was sort of a short notice in, in a bar, so I figured I'll just do it. And I didn't read 50 pages. I, I just read, like, you know, five pages. And um, the uh, writer who was hosting it said, "Wow, I didn't know you were writing a medical thriller." So that's how, that's how it started. <laughs> Anyway, I do come from a very, very medical family, um, probably the most medical family in history. <laughs> I, have 15, I have 14 brothers and sisters, and I'm the 10th, and the nine before me were all pre-med and are either doctors or nurses, most of them doctors. My older sister, Suzanne, has been a ER doctor for over 20 years. Uh, so a lot of the stories, the ER stories, all of them are actually from her. And um, uh, I wish I could have put more in and I wish I could have done them justice, but uh, yeah. So the protagonist of this is a doctor, Dr. Mendenhall. You learn her first name. Uh, the beginning or the end of part two, so I'm not going to say it, even though it's written all over the book. Anyway, she is an ER doctor, a trauma specialist, and uh, which is kind of a rare thing actually these days. Um, so she's in ER, ER, and she's in there for good, and it's what she loves. And um, I'm going to read. I'm torn between reading a fast early chapter 
Uh, that's what I'm going to So <laughs> I'll set it up for you. Um, and then I, I'd like to answer some questions. Uh, the discussion is what I like the most. So ask away. So this is set it in a, a Los Angeles um, hospital, a big one. The two characters who, the two main characters you're going to see here is uh, Dr. Mendenhall and the other person who's mentioned often is, is called Mulek, and he's a uh, architect. And she has just met him for the first time on, in the pages right before this little short chapter I'm going to read. And he is in charge of, I don't need this. He's in charge of designing the hospital, redesigning it, re reworking it. Um, modernizing So he's done some things to it. Anyway, uh, that's really all you have to know as far as background to this. And I think this chapter, which is short, don't worry, you need a chapter. I don't know a chapter, 50 pages. It's short. This chapter shows you what's going down in the, in the story. And um, one quick thing I want to talk about is, I don't know if you've been to an ER or you know that much about an ER. I learned this from my brother who is a ER nurse. He's, he's bigger than I am. He's 6'5", and so they love him. He just throws around everything. He, uh, he's the one who told me that what happens in the ER is doctors walk through it. Um, there's not always a trauma specialist because they're very rare. And if you touch a patient, if you touch some, literally touch with your hands, that patient's yours. And they call it tag. And they do, they play tag. So if you see an ER do or a doctor walking through the ER going like this, you know what's going on. A message buzzed against her hip. She kept her eyes on Mulek as he drew the cell to her ear. Her mentor had trained her to respond this way, to stay in the moment, to not let the buzz hurtle her forward. The added benefit of this response was courtesy. Mulek's expression changed from friendly to objective. In that transition, he was handsome. The city, city glow cast his face in planes and angles. A night breeze passed over the rooftop. She held the emergency to her ear. Four traumas just in. The voice was Nurse Pow Pow, which meant, come now, come ready. Mendenhall moved toward the elevator. Mulek broke with her. May I run with you? Suit yourself, she answered, but you're on your own. You fall behind, you won't get through. The elevator stilled things. She slipped her express key into the slot. Mulek pointed to the slot. He pointed with his entire hand. That was my idea. I had those put in. You stole it, she said, from luxury hotels. All good ideas are stolen, he replied, yours especially. She felt the drop in the elevator taking her to where she wanted to be. What are we falling into, he asked. Four traumas, all in at once, which indicates an event. You like it, he said. Most doctors are put out by it, but you like it. I love it more than anything else in the world, she told him. 
as the doors swooshed open and she began to hurry. She felt the tails of her lab coat tugged by the vacuum of the doors, her contour forming. It was easy to spot the cough in the bay. EMTs were beelining to it, nurses gathering, causing their usual clutter of concern. Pow Pow, her arms ending in fists, was guarding a space for men and all. Men and all heard Mulek stepping quickly behind her. He was wearing soft shoes, something athletic. For this, she thought. She slipped into the crease. The four traumas were still together. This was not right, not this deep into the bay, not this close to the elevators. No attending was near. Men and all held back for a moment, not looking at any of the traumas specifically, just taking them in as four, as an event. Where are the other attendees? You're it, said Pao Pao. Men and all went left to right. The first was a black man with gray in his beard. He wore the brown shirt of physical plant. His eyes were open and still. The second was a six-ish woman, impatient, impatient gown. Her eyes were closed, mouth open and slack. The third, the young man, had a visitor's pass, stuck to his t-shirt. His eyes were open and still. They were very pretty eyes. He's dreaming, she thought. He's dreaming he's dead. The fourth was a surgical nurse, Peterson. Her eyes were closed, but men and all could tell that someone had closed them. One of the other nurses, someone from clutter and concern. Pow Pow would never have done such a thing. No veteran nurse would. Peterson's lids were skewed, one pushed too far down, one sliding up and exposing a sliver of white. She felt all eyes on her. EMTs held raised paddles. Pow Pow's jaw was clenched. They're dead, thought men and all. Go, she said anyway. What are you waiting for? What are you looking for? I look, you go. She moved to the first, knowing that was the real way to start this. In the old days, in her mentor's time, they had DOA. She wanted to look back to find Mulek, to ask him, can we have that back? She pressed her fingers to the patient's carotid, the brush of his beard softer than anticipated. She pushed deeply, trying for any kind of flutter, the throat of a hummingbird, anything. Peterson, she thought, this guy, this guy too, we know this guy too. She drew back, looked for blood, for angled limbs or necks, for grimace, for posturing. All carts ceased. EMTs and nurses returned to ready positions. She spoke to Pao Pao. They're all from here. Pao Pao nodded, frowned parallel to jaw. No sign of injury or trauma. Men and all looked across the bay to the entrance, the huge sliding glass orange from the night beyond. She sensed the gathering bristle, some of them following her gaze. She carefully chose the order of her commands to Pao Pao. Close the doors, get infectious diseases. Three of the EMTs and two nurses ran for the door. Others along the bay gathered what was happening and tried to escape with them. Men and all stopped caring about them. Papa would get the doors sealed. In an hour, they would open and everyone could drive into the night, eat sandwiches, drink, watch TV, go online, go still. Men and all spoke to the nearest nurse and nodded toward those who ran. Write down their names. She then fingered the carotid of each patient. They're dead. She looked at her watch. 
the cheap digital she used for running. 7.36. Two of the nurses ignored her and made an EMT keep attending to Peterson. Those origami hats, thought Leninhoff. They should still have to wear those. She offered some vague expression to the two nurses, a kind of wince. It could have been a frown. It could have been dismay. She could have called them fools. All of these gave permission. Anything but no, stop, gave them permission to try to revive Peterson. Activity in the bay swelled near the closed doors. Outside, an incoming ambulance slowed, then sped away to another hospital, its lights pulsing against the glass, sirenless. Mendenhall spoke to Pow Pow, who had finished making the calls. Who was here before me? Who ran off? Dr. Kamul, said the nurse. How close did he get? Are they his? Did he touch them? Pow Pow shook her head. They're yours. They're all yours, Dr. Mendenhall. Yeah, if you have questions, I'd be happy to answer. Uh, it is a bit of a, uh, I was talking to an old student of mine, an old student, Tyler, from the University of South Carolina, here in LA to make his way. Uh, anyway, I was explaining that it, this is a bit of a departure for me in that, um, not because of the medical tour stuff, but because, I mean, like all of you who read, your, your taste, fluctuate. Sometimes you like a certain kind of book, and sometimes you like another kind of book. And um, when I was very young, um, I read a mix of things. I would read, and not knowing you know, what was what, I would read science fiction, detective fiction, and then I'd read Dostoevsky. And uh, I remember reading The Andromeda Strain, that's like Michael Carton's first. And then after that, I read the play by Albert Camus when I was in eighth grade. And I, you know, I didn't discern it. I just read it. And um, anyway, going into this book, I thought, OK, there's the vertical, which is um, the vertical for me, from, from my crazy math, literary math, whatever you want. The vertical is the. The drive, the vertical drive, the story, the events. Um, the x-axis, the, the horizontal, is the world building that takes place, the character development. And I thought, well, I wonder what would happen if you just drove a novel up, you know, almost all y-axis. Could you do that? And I, I tried to find books that did that, and even books that are supposed to be plot-driven and um, you know, uh, page turners. I, I found that they weren't, that they, not, again, not, not as a criticism at all, but I found that they weren't, that there was a lot of world building that a novel by, um, say, Agatha Christie or Ludlum, Robert Ludlum, um, The Born Identity. So you, you would think that that's a predominantly plot driven, you know, in my map, vertical driven. But what they usually do is they stop and then do some world building. <laughs> uh, so a lot of x-axis. Anyway, so I just thought, well, of course, you know, there's always going to be, no matter which one, you, no matter which one you push, 
you're going to get the other. And uh, so I was just kind of fascinated in the idea of drawing that vertical as much as I could and see what would form in the world building, you know, the bricolage that would happen on the side. And, uh, and you can see it. I mean, once you, like in the little passage I read, once she thinks of a mentor, that those kinds of things just came in. You know. She would think of a mentor in this moment because she's somebody who uses a mentor. Anyway. Um, so that's the departure And I guess, as I said earlier, came across as a medical film. <laughs> <laughs> Any questions? It's interesting to me that you're talking about having a such a wealth of knowledge and that medicine and the mm -hmm. medical world is sort of just second nature to you and that, that would be those would be terms and information procedures <coughs> that you would be familiar with and have spoken to your siblings about. And but then to think that you're sort of writing out of that impulse so that that's not the axis that you're writing along, so it's interesting to maybe you can speak to that more just then how... Oh, how that's sifted in? Yeah, just how then perhaps you didn't feel like you needed to create a world because it's yeah. a world that you've... It, it might have been, that's a great question because it, it might have been a little disingenuous in my <laughs> Well, because I knew, I knew my background <laughs> and um, medical jargon and medical knowledge um, does come second nature to me. I mean, it was the dinner talk at the table. Uh, strange cases would come in all the time from uh, my dad, who was a physician for well over 40 years. Um, really bizarre cases. He worked uh, along the border, and um, as well as um, in downtown San Diego. So he had just this mix of bizarre cases. And he would come in and talk about them. And then my brothers and sisters who were studying medicine would you know, quote the, the text back to me. And I would just sit there, meaning myself. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and I, 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 you know, I would have liked to put more in here. Mm -hmm. And maybe someday I'll, I'll write something that uh, is more about uh, you know, that kid who, uh, I, I don't know, people ask me you know, why I veered away from medicine. And I, I liked it. I, I really liked it. And I liked, I liked hearing the stories. Um, but I, uh, when you have nine older brothers and sisters, and they're going to high school, and they, we had these two libraries. And uh, on the bottom floor was the, the sort of technical library, all the medical text and encyclopedia, and anything science, math, was not neatly arranged. And in the top library was this, you know, bunch of old furniture, stuffed chairs, really comfortable chairs. And then there was a little hair dryer in there. But there were shelves and shelves of all the English literature books and uh, that they were reading. That's right. That's how I came across the plague and mom was in person. And that library was the most private. So when you have 14 brothers and sisters, you're looking for privacy <laughs> and comfortable. And so I just, so I wasn't drawn, I mean, I wasn't repulsed by medicine. I was sort of drawn into literature. But 
Yeah, I think I felt comfortable in medicine, so I knew I could Uh, have your siblings ever corrected you in your book? Well, I was smart enough to give to, to seek their advice. Um, I acknowledged uh, three of them at least in here. Uh, but they, so far, they've been okay. But they're all reading it now, and so I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna take. I'm sure I'm gonna, you know, get a lot of gas from them. Uh, yeah. Do you have to call them doctor? Your siblings? <laughs> <laughs> I don't call them back. <laughs> I, 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 well, do yes, I wonder about that sort of poaching directly, as you said at the beginning, from your sister's stories mm -hmm. and what that process is like. I mean, sort of how direct or what, what it means for you to sort of be transporting directly from someone else's account yeah. and inserting it in the yeah, and, and my sister is a very, um, the, the job, it, it shouldn't, it's not a job for her, it's a, it's a vocation, you know, it's a, it's a, a life calling. But it, it really wore her out. And um, she would, I hope I'm answering the question, she, she would, uh, she's much older than I am, not much, but 10 or more than 10 years old. So she's way ahead of me. So I was, you know, I was fairly young, still in high school, while she's a doctor, and she would bring her kids and her kids at the same time uh, for my mom to uh, babysit. So she would come by after these horrendous shifts. Sometimes there would be they don't do this anymore, but she would have 36-hour shifts sometimes, um, but certainly 24-hour shifts. And she would come and she would sip coffee and just stare at this. I couldn't even tell she was actually taking the cup, and her eyes would just glaze like that. But then she set the cup down, and she would, you know, I'd ask her, and she would tell me these stories of these cases that were coming up. And I do feel, you're wondering if I feel like I'm intruding or, or I do feel that a little bit. And I, um, you know, I, I'm going to have to talk with her about it, like, it's okay. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I knew when she was telling me those stories that I would use them somehow. And she, she, she kept telling me them after she knew. After I started publishing. <laughs> in fact, I think she started telling more. Perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know. I don't know. I think I'm kind of confused about your, I mean, I understand what you mean by the vertical access, but, access, but, um, so, but, but how, so you, you were after making it, uh, plot, that the, the biggest, the plot. Yeah, but I, I don't like to throw around the word plot that lightly, but yeah, okay. All right, so, um. But okay, yeah, let's call it plot for, for, sure, plot. No, what plot term would you prefer? No, no, plot is fine. What would you prefer? Well, I think plot, I, I just think that plot is intricately involved in uh, all the elements of fiction, including the uh, But yeah, let's go with plot. Okay, okay so I if that's what you were trying to, um, that, that uh, forward, you know, mm -hmm. momentum, um, if it were to be stripped down, and then 
you came armed, armed with the world itself, <laughs> medical world. Yeah, well it, it seems to me that in what I just listened to, because I don't know the rest of your book, that I felt there was like, I wasn't clear what the, what the um, question, like the main tension or something, the mm -hmm. question of the story was in your medical thriller. So how would you kind of, were, were you uh, in the chapter for me, were you always aware, were you always trying to reach toward the vertical or would you allow it to sort of any, because it wasn't that clear to me, maybe I just didn't. Uh, I'm just intrigued because it seems uh, like that wasn't the impression I got. And rather, I felt like this is a chapter about dead bodies. So it's about actual, not a whole lot of verticality, right? I mean, it was about death and stillness and who's going to take ownership of those bodies. Well, you mean the whole book in general, though? But so, yeah, yeah, so I'm confused. Like, I'm trying to understand how this chapter works in relation to this larger project. No, no, I don't think I'm being clear. I, I, I'm very interested in what you're saying because... Yeah. Um, for me, it is, I mean, I, I... It's a series of events that she encounters. On the roof, down to the yard. Um, it's four pages, I believe. Yeah. Um, so she gets a call she goes down there there's four people dead she realizes they're dead at the same time she closes the hospital and then that's big that was a so I guess maybe, I think I don't think I fully understood that she mm -hmm. closed the hospital. So that was probably just my inability. Yeah, she closes the whole hospital. I mean, what happens is, right there, she closes the hospital. The whole, which, you know, ER doctors can do. Um, and what happens, like, in the very next page, or a couple of pages, is she second guesses herself immediately and realizes, or thinks, believes, she may have been wrong, but now it's too late. And she sets in motion all the protocol of containment, and she then must have to fight in order to diagnose what she thinks is really going on. And I guess what I really like to know, I listened to, is that I was actually quite moved by the subjectivity of oh, thank you. experience. I wasn't felt nice. like I was being driven. So that's yeah. Amazing. That no, that's interesting to hear. Nice. Well, my question was kind of going back to an earlier question. With all these stories kind of being your sisters, did you like really make an effort to make Dr. Mendenhall not like your sister? Well, she's not. I, I don't think she's like my sister. In, in some ways, she is. Um, I mean, she has the gifts that my sister had, that, that uncanny uh, ability to uh, deal with trauma and that combination of Sympathy and objectivity. This is it's a unique combination. So I did. I took traits from my sister. But personalize that. What is it? She's like. 
Yeah. yeah, and I don't know you or your sister, mm-hmm. but I think it's cool that you have a gift that you can like see these moments. Like, it's not a sister, like her right. story, and then you yeah. like transform them into this character, this whole thing. Everybody does that. Yeah, that. it is true. I, I did not seek to, you know, make my sister the character. Yeah, yeah. yeah otherwise it would be her whatever. Probably would be a very interesting book, but yes, it's, it's not that. It's funny when I, uh, my um, the MFA writers in the program I teach them, they hardly ever ask about my work, which is good. Usually, you know, don't talk about it. Uh, if they ask it. But they, for some reason, it was early on, they said, what are you working on? And I didn't say anything. I drew the, the two axes. Sorry. So I, drew, I drew the two axes, and I drew a little x-axis, and I drew a high y-axis, and then just looked at them like this and didn't say anything. And they just talked about it for 15 minutes. Uh, of course, it doesn't, it never works that way. It's not that simple. Plot, I call it the, the four letter word, you know, um, the four letter word of writing workshops. Sometimes people don't like to talk about it uh, or they're afraid of it. Um, but I do, I really do believe, and this does come out, we were talking about Oakley, uh, who was Michelle, mentor, uh, a fantastic uh, novelist, and uh, he, he understood plot and taught me a lot about plot and the intricacies of it, and um, I never associated it with, you know, the bodice buster and the detective fiction and the, the sort of pulp fiction. Often associated. He taught me and showed me how it was intricately involved in everything, every other fiction. And I do, I do like that idea. Yes. It's gonna border on the love of I, I once asked you years ago. I said, how do you have an identity? We are one of 15 children, and you're in the middle. And you said, you don't. (laughs) 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 So I was always always moved that. I was fascinated by it. It's interesting to me to hear you talk about this book, that your your siblings haven't been in this book yet, it seems like. Um, Lord Father. That's really interesting. So that you felt this material was, you grew up in this material in a way. Yeah, yeah, I did. I read it first. Re- read it first? Re- read it first. I mean, you right. listened, and you listened to the stories, but you just took ownership of it. I did. Yeah. So, so, are you asking me, do <laughs> I still not have an identity? No, no, I definitely do. And you always did, but I thought it was, you know, you were, you were somewhat joking, but not really. No, I don't think I 
Yeah, exactly. It is. I think it is hard to have an identity, and I think it probably had a lot to do with my um, desire and compulsion to write fiction, to find an identity, or to find out not my own identity, but what does identity mean? Um, and I think that's one of the things I, I like to search in all my novels and short stories. It's always a part of it. And I, I look at my characters in them and all as one who are a little wavering in their identity and their sense of self. Um, and I think, I, I wonder about my own flaw, you know, my, I, I wonder if my flaw as a writer, one of my flaws as a writer, is I, I put too much outside the center. So, I mean, I see the identity of the protagonist, the hero, uh, as this sort of empty space that's surrounded by the, the external. And I, you know, I like that, but I, I don't know if it works. And I, I always, so yeah, I, I think I gave you an honest answer back then. No, you did. Back in the days when I, I was I honest. I remembered it for many years. <laughs> I mean, the, you, you all, you know, whether you're an only child or, or a middle child, those children have, you know, psychologists speak of this, this definite roles or the specific roles of those. Um, so what is 10 or 15? Is that middle or is that the end? You know? I didn't get to be, my middle sister, Mary, is totally the marshal of the She is like the classic middle sibling, even though she's in the middle of 15. Yes, seven months. She's just an uber middle child. Yes. When you speak about um, being surrounded by medical people as well, you, you would actually have to be born in the medical field. Um, this is really also to what drove you to write this, but um, so did you have, did you always have a desire to write about that? I and mean, was there something that drew you to that more than you do, or was it really this idea of wanting to create something that was vertically driven um, that and this just fed into you know, this lens itself to be that style? It's both. I mean, it lent itself, and I know it lent itself to that. Um, like I said, cheating because I, I felt very comfortable with it. I knew that I could draw. I could just pluck the, the stories and the terms right out of the air. <laughs> the air that is my mind. <laughs> uh, and I, I could. I did. Even, even ones that, um, you know, from medical texts that, that my brothers and sisters and father were talking about. You know the case of, most people do know the case of Phineas Gage and yeah, some of your men. He's in here because I had to put him in here. He's talked about all the time. He's the guy who, you know, he's a, a rail worker and piling iron drove up through his head from here and came off the top of his head. Didn't kill him, but it completely erased his personality and changed it. And he walked around with it in his head for a while. 
survived it, but he was totally changed because of the cut through his corpus callosum. And they actually removed it. It's a case, it's an medical. But they removed it, and he, he made a cane out of it. Did you know this? And he walked around with the 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 pile iron um, pile That's his cane. And you can see photographs of him. He never got his personal name. So. Are you working on something now? Yes, I am. Um, <laughs> I'm afraid to say it because uh, some people, will, about out of 10 people, seven say, that's boring, and three, that's fascinating, I want to talk about <laughs> I got a, uh, I want to write about sound and our, our contemporary relationship with sound. Um, and uh, so I'm writing about a sound artist, or somebody who goes around collecting sounds all over the world. And I got a, a grant, a research grant to go to Scotland and the Highlands and Edinburgh and the Hebrides to sort of gather both written and uh, field research on this. So I, I'm writing about our contemporary relationship with sound. But sound effects or just sounds no. like here? What do you mean? Both. Uh, <laughs> sound effects. There are people who go out and collect sound, not for movies, but there are people who collect sound for movies. Uh, just to bring it back and you know work with it in a collage style or in their sound artists. But they also, uh, I have a, a good friend who does this, and he has this collection of friends who do this. They go out and they, there's these ancient transmitters all over the world. <laughs> And some of them are still transmitting, or some of them are a little bit off, and um, they're in disparate parts of the world. And then there are these sound collecting dishes, some pre prehistoric even. And these people go out and they they collect sounds from them, or they uh, reinvigorate them in some way. And uh, you know, it's just fascinating. So it's going to be nonfiction. It doesn't sound real exciting, but I'll put a plot into it. <laughs> <laughs> promise. Yeah. Is that going to be a lot of X-axes? <laughs> you know, I'm not going to worry about that. <laughs> I've learned. Right? Yeah, let's look at the X. A lot of X. <laughs> may require a lot of atmosphere. Yeah, I'm not going to worry about it anymore. It was, it was, it was a very, you know, it was a learning experience for me. I knew it would be, um, and I, I hope it's also entertaining and worthwhile for the reader. I think it is. Also, you know, when I go into a novel, I have, I have the story I want to tell, and I have all that fun stuff and the characters and, and the setting. But I also like to think about. Uh, the craft and, and um, you know what can I learn from writing this and I, I hope that I always always end that way I don't know you know. <laughs> no I do I think it makes it exciting and it makes it, I, 
I, I looked right. I, I want to go, the thing I want to do most is get back to a work of fiction and write a sentence. I want to, I, you know, that's what gives me silence, to, to, to write a sentence. And, um, you know, and then make that sentence work as best as possible. And then write another sentence. <laughs> And they, I, I've, uh, I mean, I enjoy that more than I ever have before. It was so worth traveling. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Sensations passed in the night air. Mendenhall might have thought nothing of them, dismissed them as nerves, except that non-visual hallucinations had come to interest her again, since a man had been brought into the ER last week, exhibiting taste, touch, and olfactory alterations brought on by the DTs. He had died before she could finish questioning him. He wore a nice suit, was clean-shaven, the bristles along his nape tapered, pleasant against her fingers. He spoke to someone who was not there of butterscotch, a hummingbird's throat against his thumb, and the coarse scent of a horse's mane. People, normal, healthy people, perhaps have more of these than they fully realize. They resist, filter out, reject, reconstruct, disown visual and auditory hallucinations because these indicate abnormality, threaten their sense of self, their standing. She had asked the clean-shaven man if he was describing memories or sensations. He told her they were sensations, clear and new. She was testing his lucidity as the EMTs hurried the cart to the bed. She knew that this high level of lucidity amid the DTs indicated imminent demise. He died before the cart arrived. Men and all directed everything. She held the man's name, but it was all procedure. She felt him go flat, that unfailing surrender. They injected, massaged, shocked, and recorded the lifeless body. The nurse and the EMTs appeared befuddled. They had enough equipment and meds and knowledge to revive a mummy, at least into a coma. But men and all knew before the card arrived. She believed in life. Thanks. Thank you. so much for coming so go ahead and purchase the book up front and I'll set up a table and then we'll go ahead and have David sign so one more round of applause you guys
You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Young Jesus. You can check them out at youngjesus.bandcamp.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.